that there'd be a lot of people would know them. But what they said is only 15% of those non-Christians who know Christians say that the lifestyles of their Christian friends are any different than those who are not Christians. Now, what that, what that points to is anybody can say they're a Christian. But I think what most people tend to agree is that it should show up in your life. It should make some kind of difference. You should be a different kind of person. In other words, most people agree that claiming you're a Christian shouldn't just be like a label that you kind of stick on yourself, and it doesn't really change anything beyond just what you call yourself. It's supposed to go a little deeper than that. So the question we're going to look at is then what is an authentic Christian? On uh, July 5th, all the way back in 1865, the Secret Service was formed in response to a national threat. Now, the picture here you're looking is what Secret Service is known for mostly, and that is uh, the protection detail of the president. But it wasn't the threat of assassination, uh, attempts on the president's life, that uh, prompted the forming of the Secret Service. That did occur. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was the one who formed the Secret Service, and just in a few years, uh, he was obviously assassinated. But that wasn't the reason that the Secret Service was formed. It wasn't to counter the threat of a military conflict, although it was the Civil War uh, when the Secret Service was formed. Now, Abraham Lincoln formed the Secret Service to address the problem of counterfeiting. That was the original mission of the Secret Service, was to address counterfeiting. Um, here's an example of a bill back in the Civil War time. It was, it's estimated that at that time, in 1865, about a third of the U.S. currency was counterfeit, was fake. A third. Can you imagine if a third of all the money out there was fake? So you'd, you'd get a $20 back and change, and you wouldn't know, did I get 20 back, or is this just a fake one? I mean, it would really rattle your confidence. I mean, now with plastic, maybe not as much, but back then, that was how business was transacted, was mostly with the, the notes, the currency. So what was happening was the Confederacy was trying to weaken the Union financially and economically by undermining its currency. So they, the, the Confederacy was cranking out excellent, high-quality counterfeits, and it was really working. People were losing confidence in the U.S. dollar because they couldn't tell the real ones from the fake ones. Now, I, I say this because I think a similar kind of thing is happening when it comes to the Christian label, the Christian faith. The number of people claiming to be Christian is still pretty high, but it's in a pretty rapid decline right now. Now, there's a lot of different reasons behind that, um, but one of the top reasons that I encounter personally when I talk to people who are not Christians, one of the top reasons they give me for really having no interest in Jesus Christ or the Christian faith is that at some point in their life, they've encountered someone who claims to be a Christian, and that person has treated them very poorly. And as a result of that, they decided, you know what? The whole thing is awful. The whole thing's a lie. I'm not gonna, I don't have anything to do with it. Just because they encountered a Christian who might not have actually been an authentic Christian. And so it's, it's undermining the confidence in what it actually means to be a Christian. So how is it that you can tell a fake one from a real one? Again, this is not for you to go out and discern other people. This is for yourself. One of the things I also encounter a lot is people who decide to follow Jesus Christ who go through a, uh, a period of time where they're really struggling. Uh, maybe they have some doubts and they're struggling with that, or they've been going through a period of time where they're really struggling with some personal patterns of sin. And they begin to think, you know what, maybe I'm not a Christian. So I think it'll help along across the board, wherever you're at. So how do you tell the real ones from the fake ones? Well, I've asked Aaron to hand out some, some money. So these are $1 bills, and we're going to reward those of you who are sitting in the front. So um, these are $1 bills. Some of them are real. Some of them are not real. Um, I will tell you, if you got a real one, it's yours to keep. You know, you're now semi-rich, you have a dollar. <laughs> you're you're partway to a cup of coffee. Um, if you got the fake ones, now I want you to listen up on this. Please do not try to spend the fake ones. 
That is a federal crime, and I don't want to be responsible for anyone getting in trouble for spending these. So let me just, by a show of hands, how many of you got the real $1 bills? Just raise your hands. Okay. How many of you got the fake ones? Okay, sorry about that. Uh, at the beginning of the next session, we're going to do the same thing with a $100 bill. So be sure to <laughs> I don't have that kind of money. So $1 bills was, was all I could be able to do. But if you noticed how everyone seemed pretty confident, they could the ones who said it was really, they were pretty confident. They've not been trained by the Secret Service. So how, how could you guys tell the real ones from the fake ones? Let me ask those of you who have the fake ones. What are some of the indicators that you could tell this was a fake dollar bill? Just go ahead and, what was it? Wow, see? There's someone that knows what they're talking about. That's right. George Washington is not on it. Actually, if you if you look at it, it's um, kind of a Jay Leno version of George Washington. So look at, you know, you can ask someone who's got the fake, but it's George Washington with an extra big chin. This looks kind of weird. Okay, what else on the fake ones? What else did you see on the fake ones? Yeah, down here. There you go. That's the big key. The motion picture use only in pretty big letters. Okay. Uh, what else? Anything else tipped you off that it was fake? Yeah. This, this note is not legal. There you go. <laughs> this note is not legal. That's very important. This is not legal. Do not try to spend this. Okay. There's another one on the back. It says, in PMM we trust. Not in God we trust. PMM is the company that prints this. I think it's the fake money company we trust. So if you look pretty closely, and even if you don't look very close, you can tell the difference, even though you have been trained uh, by the Secret Service. So in what way, then, should a Christian be noticeably different? I mean, are Christians nicer than the average person? That's one of the ways people try to identify a Christian from someone who's not. Well, that would be great if all Christians were nicer, but you know what? I know a lot of really, really, really nice non-Christians. And I, I'd have to sadly say, I know some not-so-nice Christians. Now, God's working in their life, and, but they, they're not necessarily as nice as some of the non-Christians I know. So that's not necessarily a good identifier. It should be, but that's not the way it works. Do Christians sin less than non-Christians? I think on average you could probably say that, but not necessarily in any given day. Are Christians harder workers than non-Christians? I don't know. That's a probably not. I know a lot of hard-working non-Christians and a lot of hard-working Christians. Uh, do Christians get better grades in school? No. 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 <laughs> That's why I paused. I thought maybe someone would want to admit no. Do they drive less aggressively? Do Christians drive less aggressively? No. no. It's one of the reasons I didn't want to put a fish on my car for a long time. Is, uh, I don't want to do that. Are Christians less fun? No. No. But that's what a lot of people think. And they can be. But not necessarily. Are Christians less analytical about life? No. No. A lot of people think that. They're thinking, okay, well, if you're a Christian, or they would even say broadly, more broadly, if you're religious, that kind of means you've kind of give up on the logic side of your brain. But that's not necessarily that's not the case. Now, when it comes to the currency uh, counterfeit question, American currency has been redesigned many times. Here's a picture of some of the iterations um, over the years of the, the different bills. But when it comes to the Christian faith, there aren't all kinds of different versions. There isn't the 100-year-old version, and the 50-year-ago version, and the 10-year-ago version, and, and this year we've got a new updated version of the Christian faith. No, the Christian faith is based on what Jesus taught, and that does not change over time. So, to find out what an authentic Christian is, we're going to have to go back to the original documents and examine what the New Testament says a Christian is. So that's what we're going to do this weekend. A great summary of what it means to be a follower of Christ is found in the New Testament book of Colossians. 
uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So we're going to spend the entire weekend going through these 17 verses. These are some of my favorite verses. Now, the passage begins with two words, and these are the two words, if, then. You can see these first two words in the first um, uh, verse of Colossians chapter 3. And these two words set up the entire 17 verses. What it's saying basically is, if you're a Christian, then this is what's true of you. And it goes into great detail about what's true of you. So the 17 verses that follow list the identifying features that are present in the life of someone who truly follows Jesus. The 17 verses are divided into three major categories. There's three major sections. And each section contains three identifying features. So there are three sets of three for a total of nine identifiers. So we're going to talk about these nine Identifiers, And again, this is not to be used on the public. This is to be used on you. This is for your benefit and for your help. So here are the three categories. It's just an overview before we get into it. First of all, there are the three decisions that Christians make. This is going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then the next category or section is the three practices that Christians do. That's verses 5 through 14. And then lastly, the three powers that Christians have. They have access to the power of Christ in three particular ways. That's verses 15 through 17. So tonight we're going to begin with the three decisions that Christians make. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the three practices and the two sessions. And then Sunday morning we're going to wrap up with the three powers that Christians have and desperately need. So... We're going to read, I'm going to read to you first Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. These are the three decisions, and then we'll go through them. So let me read. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. See it at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, each section has a key that kind of unlocks the understanding of what the identifying marks are. And this section that identifies the three decisions that Christians make are identified by three words that all begin with the letter W. Here are the three words. With Christ, they all precede the name of Christ. So there's with Christ, then there's where Christ, and then there's when Christ. With Christ, where Christ, when Christ. Those point to the three decisions that an authentic Christian makes. So let's look at these now in turn. The first W word is the word with. With Christ. This is where it all begins. A Christian is someone who has decided to attach their life to Christ. So I decide to attach my life to Christ. I look at the evidence of who he is, what he taught, what he did, who he claimed to be, and I decide that I want to attach my life to him. I want to follow him. I decide to be with Christ. Now with is a small little word that carries life-altering implications. For example, a few years ago, my wife and I were going uh, through security at the Orange County Airport. And uh, we were getting pretty close to the x-ray machines. We'd already gone through the first checkpoint. And um, my wife turned to me and said, I think I left a water bottle in my carry-on luggage. So obviously not supposed to do that. And so I went in front of her and grabbed her bag, who, who was already kind of on that conveyor belt. And I grabbed her bag and I took it off. I set it to another side and started opening it up. Well, this alerted the TSA agent because he was just watching this guy get out of line, go in front of this other woman, grab her bag, take it to another area and start opening it up. And he didn't know what was going on. So he approached my wife and said, Ma'am, is he with you? And she said, Yes. Thankfully. She said, mess with you. you don't mess with the TSA. Well, no, no. Yes. So 
It's a simple, short little phrase. Are you with him? And a one-word answer, yes. But that exchange described something much deeper than just, I have the right to open up her carry-on luggage and get the water bottle out. The fact that I am with my wife is one of the deepest truths of my life. You know, 34 and a half years ago now, my wife said yes to my proposal of marriage. And we stood up in front of a group of family and friends and said, I do. And in so doing, we decided that we were going to spend the rest of our life with each other. She attached her life to mine. I attached my life to her. Now, what that means is that our lives are forever linked together. I mean, even if the marriage was to break up, which we planned for that to never happen, but even if that happened, we've had two children together. And now we have five grandchildren together. You, you can't separate that. We're, we're going to be forever interacting. We're, our lives are forever intertwined together. I mean, our financial future is tied up with each other. If she decides to do something crazy financially, or I decide to do something crazy financially, we pull the other one down with us. Our money is together. We own our house together. Everything is intertwined. So she has thrown her lot in with me, and I've thrown my lot in with her. Now, when I say I'm with my wife, that doesn't mean we've spent every hour of every day of the last 34 years together in the same room. Now, there's been times we've been on the opposite sides of the planet on different trips. But me, wherever I am, her, she, wherever she is, she's in Huntington Beach right now at home. We just talked. Our hearts are linked together. We're, we're with each other, even if we're not in the same room together. Now, I didn't feel the need to explain all of this to the TSA agent. He just wanted to know if I had the right to go through the back. So. But me being with Rebecca, my wife, is a big deal for me and for her. And it has life-altering implications. Now, I give you that example because it's a similar thing when a person decides to be with Christ. They, they decide to attach their life to Christ. And that has a number of life-altering implications. And that's what we're going to really be talking about in the rest of our time this weekend, is all of the implications that come with that simple decision, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with doing life on my own. I, I'm, I'm attaching my life to Jesus Christ. That's, in one sense, that's a very simple, quick decision. But in another sense, it's the most profound and life-altering decision that you can make even deeper than the marriage decision I made with my wife. Now, it's best summarized by the word raised. We are raised with Christ, it says in Colossians 3. What that means is the moment a person decides, yep, I'm with Christ. The moment they decide to attach their life to Him, their life from that point on and their future and their eternity has a very different trajectory to it. That doesn't mean that every day is I'm just blissed out of my mind because I just had so much fun today. No, it means that the actual direction of your life and its impact before was heading this way, down. Now, it's beginning to change. There's a different angle because you've been raised with Christ. It, it's really kind of similar to what happened to me when I got married. Have you heard the term, I married up? Yeah, I did. I married up. I attached my life to someone who elevated me. I'm a better man because of my wife. I mean, her, her mind... And her perspective on life has been a real help to me. It's been a blessing to me in ways that I, I really find hard to describe. 
And I know I'm not the only guy to ever get married to say I married up. I'm not the only one to experience this raising effect that comes from this kind of attachment. I mean, if, if you marry into money, well, your net worth is raised. You're suddenly worth more financially. If you marry someone smarter than you, you're going to make better decisions. <laughs> uh, this elevating effect that can occur in marriage is just a small picture of the life-raising impact that attaching your life to Jesus Christ has. I mean, my wife is great, but she's never risen from the grave great. <laughs> That's great. That's some serious power. I mean, Jesus did. So attaching your life to him elevates you in ways that no other attachment, no other kind of relationship can. I mean, of course, the biggest raising effect is the forgiveness of our sin. And sin is not just a moral oops. It, it is the primary cause of the decline of our life into ultimate death and eternal death. Not because God's just mean and angry, but because God is the author and the sustainer of life. And so when we decide to sin, we're separating ourselves from the author and sustainer of life. It'd be like someone walking to the end of the Huntington Beach Pier, tying a heavy weight around their ankle and jumping off the end and sinking to the bottom of the ocean there. And then being mad that they couldn't breathe. Like, well, you separated yourself from oxygen. This, this is just the natural implication. This, this is what happened. This is what sin does. It separates us from the author and sustainer of life. Jesus is the one that can pull us out of that grave. That's a huge raise and elevation of our life. Now, this life, this raising effect, is hidden. It says your life is hidden with Christ. What that means is, I can't look at you, and you can't look at me and say, hmm, I see you're attached with Christ. No. I mean, we don't glow in the dark. We don't, we don't elevate our, you know, we don't walk on you know, two inches above the ground now because we're with Christ and our life has been raised. No. It, it, it's hidden. This, this raising effect, this attachment occurs inside where we, we can't really see. That's why the TSA agent asked my wife if she was with me because he couldn't see the attachment. He had to ask. But this, this is where it all begins. This is where a person who decides to be a Christian, this is the first decision to make. So I'm with, I'm with Christ. Now they make two other decisions that are attached. It's like dominoes. The next two decisions are attached to this one. They're, in a way, they're separate decisions, but in another way, they're the natural connection to the first decision. The second W is starts the word where, where Christ is. What this means is I decide to change my values. I decide to change what's important to me. What shifts is what's important in heaven becomes more important to me than what's important on earth. Why? Well, because that's where Christ is. In heaven. Christians are with Christ, but where's Christ? Well, as it says, in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Now, we're not there. We're here on earth. So how does Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, how does that impact us living here on earth? Well, if we're with Christ, then our heart is drawn to where he is. That changes what's important to us. For example, my grandkids used to live out of state, but even though they weren't with me, uh, they 
continued to have an impact on my heart. And my thoughts would often turn to them, even though I wasn't there. It's the same with Christ, being with Christ. My thoughts often turn to where He is. Well, how does that affect us? Well, the, the phrase that's used in Colossians here is, we then seek the things that are above, because that's where Christ is. What does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. My grandkids love children's books, as you would expect. I'll be honest with you. I have always thought children's book where it would have been a giant ripoff. I mean, you know, 10 bucks for 70 words. And I never got it. It's like, man, how do you get that gig? You put out, I don't know, five books a day is what it looked like to me. So I, I've never, you know, I've never bought children's books. I've never read children's books. But you know what? I'm into children's books now. Why? Well, my granddaughters have pulled my heart that direction. Even though they were living out of state. That's some powerful influence. That's what happens when you attach your heart to somebody. Where they are and what's valuable to them begins to change what's valuable to you. So the same kind of thing happens with Jesus. Let me give you an example. I am not a fan of forgiving people who do me wrong. I've never enjoyed that. What I'm a fan of is revenge. That's what I that's what I that's that's what rings into the depths of my soul is payback. Someone does me wrong, alright, I'll figure out a way to get you. That feels right to me. But you know, Forgiveness is a big, big deal with Jesus. And you know what? It's, it turns out it's actually one of the main endeavors of heaven is providing a way of forgiveness and seeing people forgiven. And since that's where Jesus is and forgiveness is a big deal in heaven, since I'm seeking the things that are important where he is, I'm working on learning how to forgive. It's not natural to me. Just like loving kids' books was not natural to me. But my heart now is drawn towards something that I didn't used to value. Why? Because Jesus values it. Because heaven values it. And that's just one example of what begins to happen in the heart of an authentic Christian is all the things that God values, heaven values begins to rewrite and overwrite all the things that this world values. And so not instantly, but over time, this list begins to migrate over here into your heart and change what used to be important to you. That's what it means to be where Christ is. Now this requires effort. It says we seek the things that are above we set our mind on things that are above. So it's not just this emotional, I've got to work up a love for forgiveness. That, that will never happen. I have to set my mind on it. We have to think differently. And before Jesus, before we attached our life to him, we just made our major decisions based on whatever we thought was best. But now, we've got to think differently. We set our minds to make decisions that fit in with his thinking. Now, seeking, by its very nature, is an activity of priority. If you're going to seek something, that means you're, you're, you're focused. You're pushing other things aside, and, and you're focused on this activity. It's a priority. Now, we will only put in seeking-level effort for something that's important to us. You know what's important to most people in this world? Is happiness. That'd probably be the best summary word for it. Now, there's nothing wrong with happiness. But the treasure on the top of everyone else's seeking list is happiness. That's what everybody's seeking. But that proves to be a pretty elusive search here on Earth. There are all kinds of treasure maps that promise to guide us to what will make us happy. And the X that marks the spot on these maps 
is always something here on earth. Some, if you accomplish this, you'll be happy. If you possess this, you'll be happy. If you can marry a person like this, you'll be happy. And on and on it goes. And you know what most people in life do? Is they roll out the treasure map that they are most convinced about and they spend their days and their years and their entire lives searching for buried treasure. The buried treasure of happiness. But what everybody finds out is once you arrive at that spot, you find that that happiness is short-lived. The reason is that the treasure of happiness is not buried anywhere here on earth. It's not anywhere to be found on this planet. What does it say in Colossians? The key to your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where is he? Not here. You see, Christians agree that the treasure is hidden. But what they know is that it's not hidden anywhere here. It's hidden with Christ. And he isn't here. You know how much time that saves? How much money that saves? I mean, people spend so much money kicking over every rock here to try to find the buried treasure. If you become convinced of this, you can save yourself a lot of hours and a lot of dollars. And realize, you know, happiness comes in pursuing Christ. That, that's where it comes. Not in anything here. Now, how do Christians know that? Well, it says they have died with Christ. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I, I consider myself to be a Christian. I'm talking, so I'm alive. I'm not dead. We're all walking around very much alive. Well, what does it mean? Well, when you decide to be with Christ, what happens is his death becomes a kind of death for you. The death is a death to here. Now, now you're still living here. So tomorrow morning, we're going to eat breakfast because we're still living here and we need food. So we're still living here. But we're no longer trying to find the hidden treasure here. We've died. You know, the way to think about this is just imagine, let's just say you died tonight and you got to spend four hours in heaven. And then miraculously God said, you know what, I just want you to get a tour of heaven. Now I want you to go back to earth. And then you came back to life and you lived, let's say, another 20 years. How differently do you think your perspective would be for the next 20 years? Having actually seen heaven? I, well, that's what this is talking about. You, you've died. The idea is we don't get to do that, but we, we continue to make choices to die to the lies and the promise of happiness here. Not that we don't ever laugh here, we don't have any fun here, but we realize the real treasure is not here. It's, it's, a, it's with Christ in heaven. You know, what's interesting is I've noticed being a pastor, I'm often with people as they, they're near the end of their life, you know, they get older and then they're close to dying. One of the things I've noticed is that it's usually in the latter months of a person's life that they begin to discover that the important things in life are the invisible things. All of a sudden, the relationships, you, know, you can see people, but you can't see the relationship. That's what really matters. The money, they can care less about money. They care less about whatever accomplishments they've done. There, there, there's a clarity that comes close to death. That's what it means to choose now, to have that clarity now. Christians just go through that clarity of death that death can bring a little early when there's still time to do something about it. So that's the second decision. Where Christ. I decide to change my values. I decide to not just adopt the values of this world and this culture that I'm in, but I allow the values of heaven to rewrite 
and reorder the values in my heart. Because that's where Christ is. I'm with him, and therefore my heart is changed by what heaven values. That's where he is. The last W, the last decision is when. When Christ. So what this says is I decide to live for God's larger purposes. I decide to live for God's larger purposes. What it says in the verse is when Christ, who is your life, appears. That's how it starts. So Christ said before he left that one day he would appear again on earth. He would no longer be hidden. Well, when's that going to happen? Well, we don't know. There's been a lot of debate over the years on is it now or is it going to come up on this date? But everyone agrees that hasn't happened yet. But when he does, what's going to happen is those who are with him, they will appear with him in glory. What does the word glory mean? What does it mean? Well, glory is basically a beautiful and bright light. It's kind of a head-turning, awe-inspiring display of beauty that you can't stop looking at. It's like a sunset. I live in Huntington Beach, and sometimes I'm driving out PCH, and the sunset's really beautiful. So you got to watch what you're doing because people are not paying attention to what they're, they're driving. They just they can't turn away from the beautiful sunset. That's glory. That's what glory does. So we glorify a person when we turn the spotlight on them and we applaud them. We are glorifying them. Now these lesser glories point to the final moment of glory. The capital G glory. When the lights go up on God. Now we may give God glory for a beautiful sunset, but when we see tragedy, sometimes we begin to wonder if God really is that amazing. And that's because we tend to think of God as kind of a cosmic butler waiting to be summoned by the people of the world to make the circumstances of their life better. Sometimes we're very disappointed in the service that God gives. But it turns out that God is not the cosmic butler. God does help. That's not his major purpose. It turns out that God is the author of a very, very great and very, very long story. And like any story, this story is full of all kinds of ups and all kinds of downs. That's what makes any story great, isn't it? Is drama. What creates drama? Oh no, what's going to happen? Those are great books to read. But if you're living that kind of life, it's not near as fun to live it as it is to read it. But that's the way life is. This is why if you're reading a book or you're watching a movie and things get bad, you don't just close the book or walk out of the theater in disgust. You know, oh, this is just one part of the story. And you know, if it's not one of those artsy movies, I mean, if it's an actual movie that people will go to see and pay money for, if it's a good story, you know that before the two hours are up or the book comes to an end, that the hero is going to make all the wrongs right and the audience will applaud. It's always amazing to me in the theater when people applaud. I'm like... You know, they, they can't hear us, right? They're on a screen. They're not here. You know, but but that, that's just what glory does. It's like, we've, we've got to applaud. That's the moment of glory. Before the moment of glory, it can look pretty bad. Like it did, for example, three days before Jesus rose from the grave. Boy, it looked bad. Before that moment of glory... It was all dark. But then Sunday morning came and it was all light and glory. So now we are waiting for the final display of God's glory when Jesus returns visibly to wrap up history and right every wrong. So authentic Christians live for that moment when Christ will appear. We do that not by spending our days kind of looking up the heavens. What are you doing? can't stand this day, so I'm just hoping today's the day when Jesus returns. No, that's not what we do. What we do is we wait for God to return, for Jesus to return, by living our personal stories for the larger story of God. 
Now this, this is really important to understand. Before Christ, we were all writing and starring in our own personal and much smaller stories. You might call them booklets or pamphlets. The problem is, we don't have the power to bend reality to our will, so our stories don't always work out the way we want them to. And when a person decides to be with Christ, they decide to live for a larger story, a larger purpose than themselves. They are grateful to have their names and lives included in the larger story of life. You know what that story is called in the book of Revelation? It's called the book of life. I used to think when I was younger that the book of life that contains the names of all the people who spent eternity with God was kind of like a phone book. You know, so my last name starts with you, so if I got a hold of the book of life, I'd flip all the way back to the use and kind of, am I there, am I there? Oh, good. My name made it. That's not what the book of life is. The book of life is a storybook. And I don't know whether I'm going to get two lines or three lines or maybe a whole paragraph where my name will be in it. I don't know. But just the fact that I might be able to fold my life into the larger story of the book of life, the book, that's going to be read for all of eternity, oh, and I, I'm tickled pink to have the smallest and most minor role in that big book rather than to publish my own little pamphlet that nobody will read. So, until then, you know what part of the story, the great story we're living in? The middle part. That's the hard part. Beginning parts are all full of newness and new characters and wonder what's going to happen and the end is all full of glory and resolution and the middle is just full of questions. And that's the way our lives are. It's hard to live in the middle because we don't know how it's going to work out. Now if you're not married, you might be asking, am I ever going to get married? Or if I do, who am I going to marry? And will they be a jerk or will they be a decent person? You don't know. How will the marriage go? I've known a lot of people who want to get married so bad and they married somebody that they wanted not to be married so bad. So how will the marriage go? Will you have children? I don't know. What's going to happen to your children? And one of the things I discovered about being a parent is I didn't, I didn't know fear until I had kids. Really, I mean, I knew fear, but I didn't know fear. Because now, you've got these kids that your heart is completely in love with. And you don't know if they're going to get some disease and die some year. You don't know if they're going to make horrible decisions that will bring pain into your life. You just don't know. Or if it'll be joy, you don't know. So you're struggling with fear. You're living in the middle. You know what? Guys my age, I'm not going to be able to save enough to retire. I don't know. You know, the big joke is how much you need to retire? More. Okay. We're living in the middle. Everyone in this room is living with questions like these, middle questions. How's this going to work out? Am I going to graduate? Am I going to get a good job? Will I be able to pay off my student loans? I don't know. So Christians are not those who get a higher level of service from God in answering those questions. That's what sometimes people think, oh, I get like gold service now because I'm, I'm a Christian. So I get to the front of the, of the, of the line of, of service requests. Now, what we do get is we get a bigger story to fit these questions into. So this means that Christians don't demand the favorable answers to those questions in order to be okay. Now, like anyone, we want good answers. We don't want bad answers to those questions. But we have decided that the hidden treasure of life isn't buried anywhere on this planet. 
And therefore, if, if today is not a happy day, if this year is not a happy year, we prefer it to be happy, but if it isn't, we're okay. Because the treasure isn't buried here. We're living for something bigger than here. So of course, life is a mixture of good and bad. And of course, justice is a hit and miss proposition. Christians don't look at the current scoreboard of life and consider it to be final. It's the third quarter. Or so. They're willing to wait for the time when Christ, who is their life, appears. They'll wait. So what that means is while most of the heads of this world are turning to ooh and to awe and to boo and to hiss what we can see, Christians are patiently and quietly building a life that will be absolutely head-turning when Christ appears. But it's not head-turning now. I mean, no one's looking at a thank you Christian going, look at them sacrifice to do what pleases God. That doesn't turn any heads. Other than maybe sideways, what are they doing? So we wait. We build a life that will be really seen for what it is when Christ appears. So these three decisions are the foundation of the Christian life. I come back to these over and over and over again. You will not do the rest of what we talk about this weekend without nailing these three down. Are you with Christ? Have you decided to attach your life to Him? Or are you just... Or you, or sometimes what people do is they, they still want to do their own life and they want Jesus to be with them. Kind of like an assistant. That's not the offer that he makes. We are with him. Where Christ? We decide to change our values. We decide to value what heaven values. When Christ? To live for God's larger purpose. We're willing to wait for heaven to work out. So what I want to do uh, as we wrap up is I'd like to invite you to put the verse up on the screen and highlight the W words that we've just talked about. And I want to read this together. And when we get to a W word, I want us to punch it. I want us to emphasize the W words. It's not a little weird, but I think it'll help us remember what we've talked about. And then I'm going to close the prayer, okay? So I'll make sure, yep, we got it. That's good. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. When you see the W word that's highlighted and underlined, volume. Okay, let's read. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. All right, I'm going to wrap this up in prayer. And what I'm going to do with this prayer is a little different. Um, I'm going to pray a prayer that reflects these three decisions. And so I want to invite you, if you can, to allow my words to be your words. So I'm asking you to join me in heart, not verbally, but to join me in heart as I pray these words. Um, If you have already decided to be with Christ, then allow this prayer just to be a restatement of the decisions that you've already made, a re-clarification of those decisions. If um, you haven't made this decision, and you're at a point where you're ready to make this decision, then allow these words to be your words, the point of decision for you. And if that's the decision that you're making tonight, tell someone this weekend that you decide to be with Christ. It's really good to go public on this. Because, you know, if I told my wife, hey, I want to marry you, I just don't want anyone else to know about it. I don't know what you think marriage is, but that's not it. The same thing with Jesus, you know, I kind of want to be a secret Christian. Yeah. Not an option. Not an option. 
And if you're still checking it out, then don't let me put words in your heart. This needs to be you. So, just listen along. So, let me pray. And wherever you're at, allow these words to have that effect. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you tonight, up here in Big Bear, and we recognize that the evidence about who you are is very, very clear. The evidence about who we are is also very clear. We are clearly a mixed bag of good and bad. But far too often the bad takes over and we do damage, not only to ourselves, but to the to people around us. And the evidence about who you are is also very clear. There's no way that we can just explain away the miracles you did, the resurrection, other than to recognize that you are exactly who you claim to be. You are God in flesh. And so today, we declare that we are with you. We attach our life to you. And we accept a forgiveness that only you can give and the future that only you can offer. And because of that, we will now spend the rest of our days, however many days you grant us in this world, living for the things that matter in heaven, not for the things that matter on earth. And we know this will be a continual challenge because as long as we're here, we will feel the pull of everything this world values. But Jesus, we are with you. And therefore, our hearts are set on what you value and what heaven values. And we're willing to wait for the day when you will return. We know we're going to face good days and really, really hard days. We ask for your help to face the challenges of today while we await for you to return. We thank you for the privilege of having our seemingly small lives entered into even one paragraph of the book of life. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on our behalf and for the offer to attach our life to yours. We make that. We accept that offer and make that decision. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.